would like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48, as we make our way through this book, we are come to this chapter, and I'd like to read to us the entirety of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. 
and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask this blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, as I mentioned last week, we are in the final stretch of the end of the book of Genesis. These last few chapters uh, really uh, sum up the whole book. And as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, our minds are immediately drawn back to the very beginning, to the time in which God created for himself a people and a place, creating a people in his image and a place for him to dwell together with them. And as he created Adam and Eve, he blessed them and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to expand the Garden of Eden throughout all the earth and populate it. Well, tragically, we know the story that they failed in that command, and they rebelled against their covenant God. But what was a command to Adam and Eve later on became a promise to Abraham when God said, I will bless you, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and give you a place that you may dwell in. And that that promise that God gave to Abraham was repeated to Isaac and reiterated to Jacob, and, and and they clung to that promise throughout their entire earthly sojourn. Well, now Jacob's journey has led him down to Egypt, where he would spend the last 17 years of his life. And as death drew near, as he was able, with the eyes of faith, to look forward to the realization of the promises of God, he saw them from afar, and he greeted them. And as he as death drew near, he made his son Joseph swear that he would not bury him in the land of Egypt, but rather that he would bury him in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to him and to his offspring, to bury him together with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, all of whom died in faith. And even by being buried in the land of promise, they were clinging to that promise, that uh, they were clinging to the promises of God by faith. Well, now, as Jacob is in his very last days, he summons his sons to come to him so that he might bless them on his deathbed. And so in this chapter, as well as in the next chapter, we see Jacob bless his sons and also prophetically impart to them the realization of the promises of God. You see, by the time we get to the the end of the book of Genesis, God's promises are starting to to become realized, but not yet. There are 70 persons, 70 souls that have made their way down to Egypt, not nearly as many as the sand at the seashore. And so Jacob, as a prophet, looks down the quarters of time, and he speaks of the time in which God will realize that promise. And he proclaims that truth to his sons. First, in a private ceremony with his son Joseph and, uh, and his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, And then next week we'll see in chapter 49 with the rest of his sons as he blesses all the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And I think it's important that Joseph gives special, or, or Jacob gives special attention to his son Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, his two grandsons, because they've spent the majority of their life in the land of Egypt. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh were born to an Egyptian mother. And so special attention is given to them to point their eyes, not to what they could see in the land of Egypt, but to what is unseen, to the promises of God, to the land of promise that God would give to them. And so our passage begins uh, with, with Joseph receiving the word that his father, Jacob, is ill. You may recall from last week in the previous scene, uh, Jacob had anticipated that death was near, and so he made his son swear that he would be buried in the land of promise. But now, death is imminent. He's in his very last days as his body is failing him due to his advanced age. And so jo- Joseph takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see their grandfather before he dies. Notice here in verse 1 that they're listed in order of their birth. Manasseh being listed first because he was the firstborn. These two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were born to Joseph after his exaltation in the land of Egypt, when he was brought from from prison, from the pit to the palace, and he was exalted by Pharaoh and given a wife, and this wife bore him two sons. And it's interesting as we read of Joseph naming these two sons, he doesn't give them Egyptian names, but he gives them Hebrew names calling his firstborn Manasseh, which sounds like the word to forget. And he said, God has made me forget all of my afflictions. You see, the glory that he was currently experiencing far eclipsed the previous sufferings that he had experienced. And then, uh, and then his secondborn, Ephraim, he uh, sounds like the Hebrew word to be fruitful. And so he says, God has caused me to be fruitful uh, in, in the land of my affliction. And so there, Joseph, naming his two sons, showing that he still clinged to the promises of God, giving thanks to God for the, uh, for the blessings that he had experienced. As Jacob hears that his son and grandsons had come to him, he summons his strength and sits up in bed. And his, as they stand before him, he recalls the first encounter where the Lord had appeared to him and affirm to him the covenant promises there at Luz, also known as Bethel. You know the story, Jacob's twin brother Esau had sworn that he would put him to death, and so he flees from the wrath of his brother Esau to go to Padan Aram to find for himself a wife from amongst his kindred. And as he's fleeing the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to him in a dream where he saw the stairway from heaven coming down and the angels of God ascending and descending on it and the Lord standing at his side and swearing to give to him this land. He says, I will bring you back to this land. I will, I will, I, I will cause you to be fruitful and multiply you and give to you and your offspring this place. So Jacob recalls that time, the first instance where the Lord appeared to him and made him his covenant partner. This is important because Jacob is the last person to whom the Lord will personally appear to reiterate these promises and to make him uh, an individually uh, his covenant partner, thus making Jacob the last of the patriarchs. From now on, the promises are going to be extended to to Jacob's sons and offspring 
and they would be mediated through Jacob. In the same way that God doesn't appear to us individually to preach to each and every one of us the gospel, but rather he sends preachers out to proclaim and impart his blessing upon those who embrace it with faith. So here, Jacob, serving as a prophet, will extend that blessing to his sons, repeat the promises to his sons, and prophetically declare their fulfillment in the last days. And so as he has Jacob or Joseph standing there and his two uh, uh, grandsons, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, your two sons are now mine. You see, what he's doing here is he is adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as full sons so that they will inherit together with their uncles the rest of the 12 sons of, of Israel. Just like Reuben and Simeon are, are uh, his, full, his full sons, so now Ephraim and Manasseh are adopted as, uh, as heads of tribes of Israel. This was common in the ancient Near East. It was common for a, a grandfather to adopt his grandsons as full sons so that they would be co-heirs together with, uh, with their uncles. And so really, when we typically think of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's important to note that technically... It's a baker's dozen. There's 13 tribes because now we have Ephraim and Manasseh taking the place of Joseph. And yet when it comes time to divvy up the land for the allotments of the various tribes, there's still 12 allotments because you may recall that Levi, the priestly tribe, doesn't get an allotment of land. So Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, and the tribe of Ephraim end up getting uh, their own allotments of the land of Canaan. And so when Jacob, Jacob adopts the two sons of Joseph, it, in effect, gives Joseph the double portion of the inheritance, that birthright that was due to the firstborn son. And so what is Jacob doing here? Well, he is bypassing his actual firstborn son, Reuben, and giving it to the firstborn son of Rachel, his favored wife. So you may think, well, again, here we see that favoritism. Here we see Jacob doting upon his beloved son and ignoring the sons of Leah. But actually, when we consider Scripture, and as we look later on in 1 Chronicles, this is actually a, a, this is actually a consequence of Reuben's sin in line with Bilhah, taking Rachel's handmaiden, his father's concubine, and laying with her. As 1 Chronicles 5 tells us, it says, For Reuben was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the, son, uh, the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. The birthright belonged to Joseph. So here, many, many years after the fact, we see the consequence for Reuben's sinful action, that he is bypassed. He is not given the birthright as the true firstborn, but rather it is passed on to Joseph as Jacob adopts these two sons. And we also see perhaps some other motivation on Jacob's part to adopt these two sons in that he recalls the tragic death of his beloved wife, Rachel. Upon his return back to the land of Canaan, we read that Rachel was pregnant and she was giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and yet tragically she died in giving birth. And as her life was tragically cut short here, 
Jacob, in his last days, adopts two more sons, as it were, that came from her. And so giving her, claiming more children for his beloved wife. And then we read in verse 8, he asks Joseph a question, which may startle us at first, when he says, who are these? See, he's just been talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. He just adopted them as full sons. And yet now in verse 8, he says, who are these? You may think, well, perhaps he's a bit senile at this point, uh, Jacob being 147 years old. But this is not a senile memory lapse. Jacob didn't forget who it was that he had just adopted. But rather, I think when he asks in verse 8, when he asks Joseph, who are these? He's beginning the formal adoption ceremony. In the same way that that, uh, in baptisms in the Anglican church, the the priest, before he administers the rite of baptism, he says, what is the name of this child? Of course, he knows the name of the child, but it's part of the the formal ceremony. Or perhaps also in in a wedding, the minister asks, who gives this woman away? It's not as if the minister doesn't know who the bride's father is. It's part of the ceremony. So here, I think Jacob is now calling Joseph to identify the two sons, who are receiving the the blessing of adoption and also going to receive the blessing of their grandfather. And so Joseph identifies his sons, not by name, because obviously Jacob still knows their name, but he identifies them as those whom God has given him. It's interesting, Joseph reflects the clear scriptural teaching that children are a gift of the Lord. As Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And and Joseph can give thanks for these blessings that he had received, these two sons who by this time are probably in their early 20s, and yet he identifies them as those whom God has given to him. While born in Egypt to an Egyptian mother, Joseph nonetheless recognized the fact that they belong to the Lord and treats them accordingly as he presents them for a blessing. Uh, from uh, their grandfather, the man of faith. Now we're given a key detail here in verse 10 that the eyes of Israel were dim due to his advanced age. He had lost his eyesight. He is blinded. And so it it really falls to Joseph to to stage direct this whole adoption blessing ceremony as as Joseph has his sons go here and stand here and, and, and he presents them before his father it's because his father is blind and he's not able to direct it himself. And so he brings Ephraim and Manasseh before Jacob and Jacob is able to uh, uh, have them and embrace them and kiss them. Now this too, I think, is also part of the formal adoption ceremony. Of course, it it was sincere, it was genuine. This is familial uh, affection that we see on the part of a grandfather embracing his grandsons kissing them, but also I think it is part of the formal ceremony. In the same way that in a wedding, the minister at the very end says, you may kiss the bride. And that kiss signifies the union. Uh, So here, I believe Jacob embracing and kissing his grandsons and adopting them. And and adoption really is just such a beautiful thing in that it, it shows relations. It shows love and affection you have towards the person you're receiving but it also, it also is very legal. It is technical in the sense that it is, it is formally legal and binding. And that's how God is with us. It's not a choice between 
a, a legal interaction with God and a, and a relational uh, uh, interaction with God. It's both through the blessing of adoption. And so as he embraces his grandsons, as he kisses them, he says, I never expected to see your face, speaking to Joseph, because he had thought him to be long lost, uh, uh, dead for over 20 years. But he says, now I've been able to see, even though not with his eyes, but see with his hands, your sons. You see, the Lord has blessed Jacob beyond his wildest dreams. The Lord has proven to Jacob that he is able to do far more abundantly than anything he could ask or think in blessing him uh, by enabling him to see not only his long-lost son, but also his grandsons. And so Joseph takes uh, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he then bows himself to the ground. Now this is significant, because Joseph, way earlier in life, had had a dream that not only his brothers, but even his father would be bowing before him, prophetically foretelling the exaltation he would experience in Egypt. And yet now, now that that has happened, it is now Joseph's turn to bow before his father. This man who is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt is the one who is prostrating himself with his nose to the ground before his father, showing that his father, the man of faith, is more powerful than all the earthly powers on earth. And so he seeks a blessing from him. The greater always blessing the inferior. Joseph recognizes that as he bows himself before his father, seeking a blessing for him and his sons. And since his father was blind, it does it falls to jo- Joseph to uh, have his sons come forward for the blessing ceremony where, where Jacob is going to lay his hands on the heads of his grandsons, his newly adopted sons, and impart the blessing to them. Now, the fact that there's two sons means Jacob needs to use both of his hands. And it's uh, significant that the right hand would fall upon the firstborn because that would show favor to the firstborn, the uh, the firstborn getting the birthright, uh, receiving the double portion. And so Joseph, knowing that, has Ephraim stand in front of Jacob's left hand and has Manasseh stand in front of Jacob's right hand so that they would get the blessing, the proper blessing according to birth. And yet what does Jacob do? Blinded Jacob, who we may think may be a bit senile at this point, he crosses his arms. He crosses his arms and he puts his left hand on Manasseh and his right hand on Ephraim. Now as soon as Joseph sees this, he's shocked and he's angered. We read it, it it displeased him. It was evil in his eyes. And he even goes to the point of grabbing his father's arms and trying to correct his mistake. Dad, no, 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 not this way. I had it all perfect, and you just blew the blessing ceremony by crossing your arms. And yet, what does Jacob say? I know. I know, my son. He says, don't think I'm old and senile. Don't think I'm, I, I don't know what I'm doing because I'm blind. I know what I'm doing in giving the younger son the greater blessing. Now, this is ironic because Jacob was able, as the younger son, to get the blessing from his father because he had fooled his father. Isaac, who was blinded when he gave the blessing, had no idea that he was blessing Jacob instead of Esau. 
And yet he's, uh, Jacob here knows exactly what he is doing in crossing his arms. You see, each and every time this happens in the book of Genesis where one is chosen and the other is not, or one receives a greater blessing than the other, it highlights, uh, the, it, it, it highlights the important point that, that God's purpose of election might continue, as Paul tells us in Romans 9, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In order to show that it doesn't depend on anything that these people are doing before they were even born, in the case of Abraham or in the case of Jacob and Esau, God had chosen the younger over the the older. You see, the Lord often flaunts social convention, and if we've learned anything in the Book of Genesis, we should learn that. Abel being favored over Cain, Isaac being chosen over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Perez over Zerah, and even in this instance, Jacob or Joseph receiving the firstborn right over his brother Reuben. You see, God often crosses his hands. God will often choose the ones that we wouldn't think he should choose. And he does that for a reason. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, none of us are here today because of our own choosing. None of us can pat ourselves on the back for making a good choice. You see, God has chosen us the low, the despised, even the things that are not, so that all glory and praise would go to him. And ultimately, I think that's what's being communicated here, is the younger receives the greater blessing than the older. And historically, we see this fulfilled in that the tribe of Manasseh will grow into the largest of all the tribes, much larger than the tribe of Manasseh, uh, sorry, the tribe of Ephraim will grow much larger than the tribe of Manasseh, which ultimately is geographically divided by the Jordan River. And the tribe of Ephraim will become synonymous with the northern kingdom. It will be a much greater tribe, and we see that historically worked out in this blessing. But backing up to verses 15 and 16, we see the blessing itself as Jacob recalls the Lord's past faithfulness to him and to his fathers. And like that high priestly blessing we read of in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and and lift up his face upon you. Uh, Just like that blessing, this blessing invokes God three times. Notice there in verse 15, he first describes God, the God of his fathers. The God before whom his fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Then he describes God as his shepherd, the one who has shepherded Jacob, his entire sojourn here on earth. And then finally, he refers to God as the angel who has redeemed him. This angel who has appeared uh, to Joseph, the angel of the Lord who speaks for God and yet is God, the very one uh, uh, with whom he wrestled on on the banks of the river Jabbok. This one he identifies as his kinsman redeemer, who has redeemed him from all of his troubles. It is this God 
who will bless the young man before him. This God who has revealed himself to Jacob throughout his life, who through, uh, through, throughout redemptive history has revealed himself through his acts and his promises to him. Ultimately, this is how we receive the blessing of God. We know God through his actions towards us. And we know God most fully through his actions towards us in his son. And so it's interesting, as, as Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh before him, he refers to God's past actions and how he's revealed himself to him as the God of his fathers, the God who is his shepherd, and the angel who is his, who is his redeemer. So when we read in the New Testament of blessings being given, we read things like grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we see we receive the blessing of God. It is through him that we know God and his actions for us. And so that's the type of God who is blessing the sons here. He says in verse 21, God will be with you. You see, even though uh, Jacob was ready to depart this life, before he, he, before he departs this life, he assures his son Joseph that God will never leave him nor forsake him but that he would be faithful to bring them back to the land of promise. You see, here he warns Joseph not to get too tied to the land of Egypt. Even though he spent the majority of his life here, even though he's been exalted to the second in command over all of Egypt, even though his sons were born in Egypt to an Egyptian mother, he says, God will be with you and he will take you back to the land of promise. Here he foretells the exodus. And as a token of the whole land, Joseph gives, or Jacob gives his son Joseph a portion of the land that he had obtained while in the land of Canaan. And he says here, it's translated in the ESV, I've given you one mountain slope. Perhaps some of you have other English translations. The Hebrew is a bit difficult to translate here, but literally he says, I have given you one of Shechem. Shechem. And you may be thinking, well, I've heard of that place before. And if, you remember, if you're thinking about that, you're right, because it was Shechem that Jacob, when he had first come back into the land of Canaan, when he stepped foot back into the land of promise, he actually purchased a plot of land. He purchased a plot of land near Shechem. And it was only later on that his son Simeon and Levi massacred the city of Shechem because the prince of that city had defiled their sister Dinah. And Jacob condemned their actions and still, as we'll see in chapter 49, distanced himself from their gross overreaction of administering justice. It was totally disproportionate to the sin committed. But here in claiming this city, in claiming as taking it himself with his own sword and bow, giving it to Joseph, I think Jacob here is forecasting the manner in which the children of Israel would inherit the land, that is, by conquest. You see, looking forward to the time in which God would bring the Israelites back into the land of, of Canaan to give them, give them the land, they wouldn't get it through intermarriage, they wouldn't get it through, uh, through purchasing the land, but they would get it through military defeat. They would, de they would defeat the, in, the inhabitants of the land. They would conquest the land as executioners of God's wrath. 
So here I think Jacob is, is forecasting that. As he says, I've given you this land as a token of the fullness of, of the promises of God. In some, we see in our passage, Jacob on his deathbed bless his grandsons and adopt them as co-heirs together with the rest of his sons. And as we consider that idea of adoption, of taking people who are outsiders and making and bringing them in to the covenant community, those who are far being brought near, I think we can trace that development throughout Scripture. As we read, for example, in Psalm 87 that speaks of the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the fact that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Then it goes on to describe the inhabitants of the city of God, those dwelling together with him. And it says, among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab. Now, Rahab is another name for Egypt. And so it says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Here's a list of foreigners. Here's a list of Gentiles. Here's a list of people who are far away from the covenant promises of God, who are not born as, as children of, uh, of Israel. And yet when God, and when the psalmist is recounting the inhabitants of the city of God, those dwelling together with him, it's mentioning the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the, and the, uh, the uh, Philistines. And as each and every one of those people are listed, it says, this one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born. Each and every one of us has been born somewhere. I would imagine most of us born in the United States, very far away from the city of God, Jerusalem. And yet, when God looks at us, he says, you were born there. You were born in Zion. You are part of God's people. You who were far have been brought near. And ultimately, that is fulfilled in the new covenant. When Jesus Christ comes to gather for himself his flock, to gather his people into one family. We read in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And in Romans 8, Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and get this, fellow heirs with Christ. You see, even as Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted by Jacob and made as if they were his full sons, they became fellow heirs, joint heirs together with the rest of their uncles. They got as much as the others. And that's how it is with us in Christ. You see, we are co-heirs with Christ. We get all that he gets. It's just remarkable as we consider the grace of God given to us in adoption in Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks.